Welcome to Love Canberra, a show about love, sex, and relationships here in the heart of the nation. I'm Ivana Ho. On the evening I spoke to Simon, it was well past his bedtime. Not that it was late by any conventional standards. He just happens to go to bed around 7.30 and rise between 4 and 4.30 a.m. I can't imagine 4.30. What do you do at 4.30? I enjoy the silence and the peace. Um, I make a slow cup of coffee. I On my table there is a pair of night vision goggles and sometimes I'll go out and I'll watch the possums playing in the trees and the kangaroos and the rabbits on the oval nearby here and... Um, watch the bats flutter around and if it's really really cold I'll just uh, um, listen to some classical music and have a slow coffee while I think about the day ahead and what I've got to do and mm. it's it's a time of ultimate peace it's also a time of such wonder because anything is possible from that moment onwards the day is fresh it's virgin there's nothing despoiled about it and all the possibilities are on the table it's a wonderful time of the day simon is a botanist across the room from us is his well-tended lily i love plants and to me a plant isn't just something green in the environment that you may or may not be able to eat it's a dynamic and exciting living organism and when i look at that lily i can see in my mind i can see its metabolism I can see how it's generating the sugars and the proteins it needs to grow and to survive. I can see how it respirates, how the air is being sucked in through the stoma and how it's being expelled out. I can see the, the fluids move around the plant through the xylem and the phloem. And I can understand its growth cycles and I can actually see where it's growing. Um, and I know the speed that it grows because I'm able enough to have measured it. <laughs> And I touch it daily and I stroke it and I talk to it because, well, it's just as communicative as a cat. Simon's two cats prowl around us quietly as we're talking. What do you say to it? And do you say to it different things from what you say to your cats? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> I sort of stroke it and I go, oh, you look like you need some water or maybe there's a bit of dust on your leaf and I'll just talk to it about plant maintenance, as I call it. Okay. The cats are different because they get emotional uh, plants. I'm yet to encounter an emotional plant, which is good because oh. I wouldn't know what to do if I did. <laughs> plant psychology. No, uh, that's a little bit too complex for me. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you say to your cats? Oh, well, when I come home from work, I will talk to the cats and I'll open up their cat tray and I'll start cleaning out and I'll talk to them about their, well, their poos and their wheeze. <laughs> and then I'll feed them and one or two of them will come up and say thank you and I'll just talk to them about my day and um, ask them what their day was like and they generally look at me or bite me. And then I just go about my business and occasionally they'll come up and want some attention and I talk to them about what I'm doing. And often when I'm writing and I have a paragraph or a chapter that's really difficult, I'll read it to the cats. Um, 
the cats probably don't understand what I'm doing, but it helps me because I can hear it being spoken. Mm -hmm. And the cats will just sit there and look at me and go, oh, he's paying attention. And so it works. It's good. My life would be so much poorer without them. I'm so much more lonely. The writing Simon has been doing is for a book, the subject of which is what we're here to talk about. And, of course, the book was inspired by a series of experiences that you had, the first of which, I guess, was the longest and maybe the most damaging? No, that was the last. That was the last one? Okay. The, it, it was three emotional roller coasters, three terrible abusive relationships, but it was precursed by having to have grown up through some of the most trauma traumatic times. Um, in Middle Eastern history, uh, the Iranian Revolution. Um, I was forced to live through that um, and constant moving um, from 1967 when I was born up until 1978 when we finally settled in South Australia. It was sometimes we'd move countries every couple of months, other times we'd wait a couple of years and then we'd move again and we were always constantly switching from language to language, culture to culture, environment to environment, until we settled in, in Australia. And that was most dislocating. And, and I'm beginning to suspect that that um, may have predisposed me to be more susceptible to um, violent and abusive behaviour from my partners. So how old were you when you moved to Australia? I was 10, okay. and uh, that was, uh, we arrived March 1977, so, oh, there's a four in that number. <laughs> there's a lot of fours in that number, so yeah, um, it was over 40 years ago. I've been here and uh, very happy to be here for a long, long time. And in fact, I was so happy that um, when I got my citizenship in 1986, um, I waited till I finished high school and university, and, and then in 1990, I joined the Australian Regular Army because I believed that that was the best way I could pay back the gifts of being given citizenship. And uh, yeah, I had a really exciting time and a very enjoyable time in the Army. And uh, now I feel like uh, not only have I gotten my citizenship, but that I did something to say thank you to the people of Australia for granting me the privilege of being an Australian. Mm. And uh, yeah, I've got my citizenships hanging up upstairs and I look at it quite often. And uh, May 26, which is coming up very shortly, is the anniversary of my citizenship. And what I do is I, uh, I tend to pour myself a cognac and I toast myself and I toast the, my citizenship and I have a quiet little celebration and it's, a nice tradition. It's some people think it's a bit weird, but uh, I value the gift I have, and uh, and I can't understand why people who get their citizenship wouldn't value it the same way that I do. Mm. So that's just me. Mm. So what was the first serious relationship that you got into? <sighs> Ooh, well that happened about 1995. I. Uh, I fell in love with this uh, lady and um, it all started off pretty well. Um, it accelerated very quickly. Uh, the thing about an abusive personality, and I've spent the better part of a year studying them, is that 
They always seem so perfect. There's never a fault with them. And they know you very, very well. And they know you very, very well from the beginning. And it's so easy to fall into that trap. And I did. I fell into that trap. And within three months, we moved in together. And how old were you? Let's see, 1995, 25, 26, 28. And, um, yeah, she was the second girlfriend I've ever had. I was, and still am probably somewhat unattractive. And I always found it very hard to find girlfriends or people who'd give me, spend me time of day because I'm so different from most people. Um, but anyway, so we, the relationship started. She moved in with me. And things seemed pretty normal at first. But, and this was characteristic of all three ladies. And when I went out and tracked down other people who had experienced domestic violence, I got pretty much the same story. At first, the, uh, the violence, for want of a better word, uh, was incredibly subtle. It was very hard to detect that it had begun. Um, there were just little little things that could appear to be stress or discomfort about something, but they were always couched in a in a I'm a little bit off colour sort of approach. And you always fell, or I always fell, for the excuse. And so and I found this out by talking to abusers. I went and tracked down 200 abusers mm. all across the country. And they all said that the first stage is trying to work out what abuse techniques will work on the victim. And when I think back to it, all three women did exactly the same thing. They had different approaches, different methodologies, but they started what we used to call in the army a reconnaissance and force there would be an initial barb. Generally, it was an insult or an off, offhand comment or something like that. And it would hit you and you'd be momentarily confused and then immediately would come an excuse and apology and then they'd wander off and you forgot about it. But the cycle had begun. And from there, it was a matter of them determining what techniques worked on me and what techniques didn't work on me. And when I look back at it, I could see certain things like uh, I was once slapped across the face. And that was the last time it ever happened with that particular woman. But isolation was her favorite tool. And she slowly removed my friends and family members. And mm. it was nasty. But it, it took between eight and two years, eight months to two years for, uh, for the next phase of the abuse to happen, mm. which is where they established control. And, uh, well, the first one, she started the abusive cycle, but it ended when she started sleeping with her ex-boyfriend and I escaped. So how long were you with that person for? Uh, two years. Okay. She had just about established control. We hadn't gotten to what I call the maintenance abuse, where essentially they build up the dependency and then hold you at a, at a set pace of cognitive stress. Um, 
So we hadn't exactly gotten into that phase, but we had definitely gotten to the point where control had either just been established or was on the verge of being established when the whole relationship ended. Um, and then I didn't, uh, see, I was 30 when it ended, and I didn't develop another relationship until I was, what, 33? So I sort of, whoop, stayed back. Now, the second woman was not as subtle as the first and nowhere near as gifted in her techniques as my last. She was an artist. But anyway, the second one was a very brutal woman. I can give you an example. You see, we all, we all have a degree of self-confidence, some more, some less. And that self-confidence is built up from many, many bricks. And it takes a long time. And what my second abusive woman was incredibly good at was working out where your weaknesses were in your self-confidence and then working her way at them a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, but constantly. And what would you say were your weaknesses at the time? My weaknesses were that I was very concerned about ensuring that the relationship worked. So anything that was even slightly um, a risk or hazard or, if you like, a bump in the road, I was determined to stamp it out. I had had one engagement which failed. I was on my second engagement. We were living together and I was determined to make this work. The problem was that blinded me. And that made me even, even more easy to control. For once, things we, we were both employed. And I was working nearby, and she worked at a call center in the city. And we were only about half an hour from the city. She never paid one bill. She never contributed to the groceries. All of the housekeeping, everything was mine. And all she did was spend her money on trinkets, and toys, and going out partying with her girlfriends. So I was constantly maintaining the household. And whenever she had overspent or had um, maxed out a credit card, I was expected to pay. And it went on and on and on. And the abuse became worse and worse and worse. There was one day when um, really was the end of my independence. It was our anniversary. And she'd, she'd come home late. She'd had a later shift and I'd been home for a while. And she walked in the door and she was in a really foul mood. She'd had a terrible day. And because it was our anniversary, I'd paired her favorite meal and I'd gone out and I'd bought her favorite wine and I put her favorite album on the hi-fi. And, and I made it all for her, laid it out. And um, during dinner, she ate the food and didn't say anything. She drank the wine and didn't say anything. And she just sat there brooding, staring at me as if I was some sort of terrible thing on the bottom of her shoe. And then she stood up and said, you're a shit cook. And those were the last words she said to me for a year. For a year? Did she leave? Nope. Okay. What happened? She just refused to talk to me for a year. Okay. And then the relationship ended. Hmm. 
So she continued to live with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess you continued to sort of financially support her. I tried very, very hard to get her to be part of my life. Mm-hmm. But as soon as she had decided that she'd gotten everything she could out of me, she left. Right. That would be so strange, living under the same roof as somebody who just decided suddenly to stop talking to you. So you would, you know, I mean, I guess um, immediately after the dinner, you would have attempted conversation with her and she would have just maybe ignored you or something? Yeah, she locked herself in the bedroom Mm. and wouldn't speak to me. And that was the last conversation I had with her. It was a very hard year. Um, and it pretty it came pretty damn close to breaking me. I mean, I was already a very, not insecure, but um, having lived through the Iranian Revolution and seen my schoolmates um, shot in the back of the head because they weren't Muslim, and having had people threaten that to me because I wasn't a Muslim, And having seen a country that changed from a progressive, modern, secular state into an Islamic hellhole, literally overnight. I mean, on 25th of February, it was a progressive country. On the 26th, there was blood in the streets and people were being hung from lampposts. Modern people just don't understand. To have gone through that... To have gone through a time when my teachers had been executed and because I wasn't a Muslim, I was expected to clean up the mess. And I was about 10. So I already had a lot of damage. There was a lot going on in my head. And I wanted something stable and something loving and something warm. And I never got it. Your parents didn't give that to you? They did. But there's a difference between the love and care of a parent. And you eventually have to leave your parents. Mm. And I didn't want to be alone. I wanted someone to help me fill that void and I never got it. And now it's just far too late. Mm. Um, Yeah. Those were tough years. So... How long was it that you were with that second woman? Just under two years. Um, She started going really strange. Not that she wasn't strange at that point, but um, I had a cat called Columbus. No, I had a cat called Magellan. And a dog called Coco, a red set, a beautiful dog. And then one day I came home from work and there was another cat called Harley. All right, I can live with two cats. And then a couple of weeks later, there was a third cat, which I named Columbus. Okay, I thought. Then three more weeks later, there was another cat, this one called Grebo. My alarm bell started going off. So that's four cats now? And then there was a fifth cat. Uh, Little Rocket, I think he was called. 
And I started getting really concerned at this point because I was the one who was feeding the cats, cleaning the litter tray. Um, and five cats is a lot of work. And she was doing nothing. And then one night I had just had enough and I kicked her out of the house and I never saw her again. Okay, I mean, you guys weren't talking at that stage anyway. No, we weren't. Yeah. Um, but I spent a lot of time recently thinking about that act when I turned. Mm. And I went and did some more research and I talked to some people who were victims and they turned. And I talked to some of the abusers I met, one of which was in jail, um, who had had their victim turn on them. And one thing that keeps coming out again and again, it doesn't matter who I talk to, is that the violence of the turn, and it's violent. Um, it's either verbally violent, emotionally violent, or physically violent, is based on what appears to be the lack, no, the destruction of the sense of dependency of the victim on the abuser, coupled with the sudden loss of control over the victim. So the abuser no longer has control. That cycle, that positive feedback loop is broken. And another, and another feedback loop is beginning. And that is an enormous surge of stress and anger and hate within the victim. And this is the big difference between the two participants in the abuse cycle. When the abuser is abusing, they're really, really calm. When the victim turns to abuse, they're really, really stressed. And the abuser can't handle that, so they flee. And that's what happened in the second time. She fled. After I kicked her out, she fled. I'd become uncontrollable. And that was the end of the relationship. Did you recognize that her leaving was a positive thing? No, it took me 12 months to basically recover. Um, I had not understood why or how. Uh, I'd gotten into a state where I was living with somebody who wouldn't even look at me, certainly refused to talk to me. Um, you see, you're in a different psychological mindset when you're the victim of abuse. It gets to the point where You measure your worth by the intensity of the abuse you're receiving. Uh, periods without the abuse become abnormal, they become frightening. You, you just can't deal with it. The abuse of silence is delicious because it's continuous and ongoing. And so you're always at a constant drip feed of understanding of your worth, which is pretty low, but you understand that. Why you accept it? I can't answer that. There's a lot more thinking I have to do on that particular topic. I know it's got something to do with dependency. 
but you know there's just so much we don't know about the human mind and the way in which it adapts to circumstances and situations that uh, there's a lot more work that needs to be done and I am not a psychologist <laughs> so I don't know so if the degree of abuse is commensurate with the victim's sense of self-worth then what was your sense of self-worth at that during that year when she was ignoring you it was not constant it was dropping at a very regular pace i would say that um oh, it's hard to judge the the line of depression um it's It's, on, it's interesting because you become, you become a Jekyll and Hyde sort of person. When I was at work, I was cheery and happy in my normal self. When I got into my car to drive home, I was cheery and happy. When I saw my house, all that evaporated. And I went in with the mindset that I was entering a war zone. And, and then I just existed until I was next in my car on the way to work. And then I was happy again. Home wasn't a refuge. Work was the refuge. Home was where a different sort of labor occurred, a psychological and emotional labor, rather than a physical or intellectual. Um, I don't know how I can describe it any other way. I mean, to think about that situation in a very primitive way, you would think that you would be drawn towards what was making you happy. So then, you know, you might seek to stay at work for longer and longer hours. Oh, no, you don't dare. Home. Oh, no, 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 you don't dare. <laughs> um, the thing is, it's a creeping barrage. It, uh, it doesn't just happen all at once. And, and you're controlled. This is not a steel trap or the bullet from under the gun. This is a slow constriction of your life. And if you try to resist, you get a big bucket of hate dumped on you. And the more you resist, the bigger and deeper that bucket of hate becomes. And it builds and it builds and it builds and it never ends. And eventually, eventually, you start to agree and you start to internalize the abuse because it's the only way you're going to get some peace and you'll do anything for peace. And if you come home late, that bucket comes back and you'll do anything to avoid that bucket. You will do anything to avoid that bucket of hate. A slow burn level of abuse you can tolerate, but those seriously intense abusive phases, no. I would, uh, I would have killed my own son to avoid that. When I got to that point, just ooh, no. I really, unless you've been through the cycle, it's very hard to understand what I'm saying. But it's intense. It's surgical, scalpel-like incision into your soul, and they take a little bit of you each time, and they parade it in front of you and you become smaller and smaller until there's nothing left.
So that relationship ended when you were roughly 34, 35? Yes. The next one didn't start until I was 36, and that was my last ever. So how did you meet that person? On a railway station in Adelaide. Um, she seemed perfect, smart, intelligent, worldly, had a career. So you, you're, you're both at this railway station. How is it that, you know, you came into contact? And... Well, we were both about to board the Gan to go to Alice Springs. Okay. And uh, she was in the cabin across the hallway from mine because I like to travel first class on the train because I've traveled economy on the train and I'm not doing that again. Um, <laughs> and it's actually really quite nice to, on the Gan of the Indian Pacific, as you're going across the horrible deserty places to sit in the, uh, in the um, bar or the lounge car with a glass of Chardonnay and look out at 40 or 50 degree heat and, and wonder what all the kangaroos are doing and to hell with them. And it's, it's actually quite pleasant. And so I, I do it. I don't do it all the time. I, every couple of years I'll, I'll have a journey just to spice up my life. And, and I was doing that. I was actually taking my parents to Alice Springs. And then we were going to hire a car and drive to Ayers Rock. And... So your parents were with you on, on that trip? Oh, they were. They had their own cabin yeah. in another car. But... Uh, yeah, we were all on there and a relationship happened and it was very quick as it always is with abusive personalities and and I don't know why I didn't see the alarm, the, the warning signs, but uh, less than a year we were married and uh, and that first year was really, really nice. It was perfect. So what were the warning signs now in retrospect? First of all, the initial warning sign is the relationship goes very quickly, very quickly. And I've talked to other people and it does go very quickly. You, before you know what's happening, you're in a relationship. And it can, it can last, that period can take as little. I talked to one person and they moved in after five days with somebody. Um, it happened so quickly. And it seems so perfectly. It's because they're perfect, okay. right? They're perfect for you or they're just perfect in themselves? The, the psychosis that the abusive people have is pretty much a mirror. You see, they reflect everything that you want in, in a partner. And it doesn't matter what it is you want, they will appear to have it. They'll appear to be that person. And... Unless you are less accommodating than I am, I guess, unless you are normal, that is so addictive. And that's why I'm terrified to have another relationship. I've had three very serious relationships. All three of them were abusive. All three of them were perfect. And, oh God, I wish I could give you a better explanation. I tried to work it out in my book. And um, I don't think I was successful in working it out. All I could really do was explain how it felt. And, well, I can give you an idea. With my third and final relationship, this was 2009 this happened. 
I went away on a business trip. And while I was away, I got sick. I came back and I had a cold. And then it went down on my chest and I thought, oh, well, I've had bronchitis or, or chest cold before, this is nothing. But it wasn't bronchitis. It wasn't a chest cold, it got worse and worse and worse. It was whooping cough. We were living in Queensland at the time. And it just got worse and worse and worse and worse. And it reached the point where I was having coughing fits and fainting. And this was happening multiple times an hour. I was too weak to eat. I couldn't drink. Um, I had a constant fever. I was weak from lack of oxygen. I was really in a bad place. And so I asked my then wife, please take me to the hospital. And she said that she would as soon as I finished building the stairs in the backyard. So in the condition I was in, in a North Queensland summer, I went out to the backyard and I dug into the hard clay. I mixed the cement, I laid the bricks and my coughing fits got more intense. And the period between was smaller and smaller and smaller. And it took me 12 hours and I fainted multiple times. I was covered in cuts and blood everywhere. And I walked into the house and she said she'd take me to the hospital when I had a shower and put on clean clothes. So I went and had a shower. I got dressed into clean clothes. She took me to the hospital and left me there. For two weeks I was in the hospital without a visitor. Then I had to catch a cab home. When I got home, I was told off for being lazy. That's physical violence. That's physical abuse. And that drove me to my first suicide. That was bad. But I was more frightened dying that I was prepared to go out in conditions that you wouldn't force a dog out of their kennel in and to work in the hot sun and high humidity. I have a clearer understanding of what it was like to be on the Thai Burma Railway because of that experience. So in terms of how you got to that point, so you mentioned you met on the GAN and then you were married a year later. Mm -hmm. So what year was it when you got married? We got married in 2003, in March of 2003. Uh, and our one and only child, Christopher, was born in July 2004. And from that period, from March 2003 to July 2004, things were normal and happy and wonderful. The day Christopher was, the day we brought Christopher back from the hospital, everything changed. It was like going from white to black. Um, I wasn't allowed in the master bedroom. From that point on until I walked out after my second suicide attempt in 2013, I was, I never got back into the master bedroom. I slept um, on the floor in the, in the second bedroom because we didn't have a bed in that bedroom. So I slept on the floor for nine years. So 
I mean, when she shut you out of the master bedroom, you know, what was the reason that she gave you not being Because the baby you? was going to sleep in the bed with her. Okay. And she didn't want me killing the baby. Mm -hmm. I stupidly accepted it. I should have insisted that he slept in a cot. I didn't think it was going to last for nine years. So, I mean, your child grew up and would have, I'm guessing, outgrown the bed. Though he still sleeps in the bed with his brother. Okay, then. And he's, what, 14 now. Right, okay. And she abuses him in other ways. But, you know, I'm a white male. And when I complained to the Department of Child Safety in New South Wales, they told me because I was the boy's biological father, I wasn't permitted to make a complaint. Mm. So they didn't take it. And when I went to court and I tried to argue that I should have custody of my son, they looked at my military record and saw that I'd served overseas and I was wounded and that I had PTSD from my overseas military service and decided that I wasn't a fit and proper person to raise a child because... Although, and they admitted that my son lives in an abusive relationship with his mother, he's safer with her than with somebody with PTSD. So now I have to go through life with the understanding that the country that I love so much, that I sacrificed so much, and that I actually bled a lot in Afghanistan for, does not want me to be a parent because of the sacrifices I made for the country. And they reward her for abusing my son. And she yells at him, she hits him, she forces him to sleep in the bed with her. She does all these things and the people of Australia think that she's a better parent than I am. So the abuse continues. Mm. It's just as different agencies involved now. So then in terms of your son growing up and living with the two of you, um, so what kind of relationship did you have with him as a parent? None whatsoever. Um, I was not permitted to be a parent. Every time I was trying to have a talk to my son, boom, she'd push me out the way. Um, Every time he went outside in the backyard to play, if I went outside to push him on the swing or anything, boom, she prevented it. Um, I was never allowed to have a moment alone with my son. I was not allowed to tell him off if he did something wrong. Um, if I wanted to spend any time with him, I had to ask her permission first. It was just... I was prevented and I'm still prevented from being a parent. I, mean, I was just a sperm donor. I guess I'm just wondering, like, yeah, like, just how do you assert your rights as a father? You know, I mean, I guess... I don't. Some people might say, you know, well, I'm, I'm the boy's father. I have every bit the same, you know, level of rights as you do as... as but I mother. don't have the same rights. That's pretty obvious. I don't have the same rights in law. I don't have the same rights morally. Only the mother has the rights for being a parent. I've learned that the hard way. If you're a father and the mother doesn't want you to have anything to do with the child, there's nothing you can do about it. 
Absolutely nothing. And, and the law will step in and prevent you from being a parent. But I guess before the law stepped in, I mean, was that your mentality even no, prior to that? No, no, I was trying very hard to be a big part of my son's life. Yeah. But I just wasn't permitted to. Every time I got close to, you know, say taking my son to the zoo or for a drive in, because I had a little red sports car with the convertible at the time, um, that he, he used to idolise. Nope, wasn't allowed to happen. Nope, can't happen. And I don't, didn't want to get into a screaming fight with her in front of the boy because that would have upset him. And so what do you do? I can't assert my claim because the violence will begin. And the violence was awful. Oh, boy. And it wasn't just denial of medical aid. Like, he would have been just over a year old when this incident happened. And uh, we were... Live, we'd moved to Sydney and I was sitting in the lounge um, with my son and we were playing this little game and I'd roll the ball to him and he'd giggle and he'd push it back to me and back to forth, back to forth, back to forth. And he was sitting on his bum on the floor and he toppled over and he hit his head on the side of a settee, very similar to this, very soft. And he was more startled than anything, certainly not injured in any way. Before I could touch him to pick him up and give him a hug to say it's all right, she appeared out of nowhere, hit me really hard across the face and left a big bruise that went from here to here, picked up the boy and then went upstairs. And the message was really clear. I had hurt her son. He wasn't my son. And I wasn't allowed to spend time alone with my son. See, he was one then. The next time she allowed me to spend any time with my son alone was when he was eight. And all the time um, she'd say, Daddy's a bad person. Daddy's a nasty person. Children can be weaponized. Mm. So was she working at the time? No. No, she wasn't. Mm. I mean, like between the ages of, you know, when he was one and eight. No. As soon as she came to Australia, she stopped working. She hasn't didn't find a job. She refused to work. I had to provide the income. And, and the thing is, it wasn't just a constant pace. Every two years, I had to increase my income by a certain percentage. And so between 2000 and, yeah, 2002 to 2013, I'd raised my income by $120,000 a year, and it wasn't enough. Um, it was never enough. So I remember I left the army and I was on 80,000. I went from 80,000 to 100,000. She complained that it wasn't a big enough rise. I worked with that company for two years. I went to another company. My income increased to 130,000. That wasn't enough. I got all the way to 225,000. It still wasn't enough. And when I couldn't increase my salary at the speed she wanted, she would go out and she would max out all the credit cards on Louis Vuitton handbags. 
and they were all in, and all the credit cards were double names, so they were in both our names. And I had to pay them out. And she would do that to provide a big enough debt to inspire me to get more money. And so I was constantly resolving her debts and choosing jobs that I didn't enjoy because the income was high enough. And then when I did achieve a miracle in a, in a, in, I mean, in one year I had a $75,000 pay rise. When I achieved miracles like that, I'd be abused because it wasn't $80,000. There was never a, a, a time when she would sit back and go, wow, you did really well, I'm proud of you. It was, it's not enough. And I'd be punished. And a good example is when the marriage broke out, broke down and I fled after my second suicide attempt. The first thing she did is she went out and she maxed out all five credit cards. And, and then they came for me and I spent 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017 paying out, paying off four, five $10,000 handbags. And I couldn't shift the, the debts onto her because they said, well, she's unemployed. I've had to pay for her car. She sold the house at a loss and they came for me for the difference. So I paid that out. And now she's dragging me through the courts. But that all ends on the 20th of August. It's the last day in court, thank God. I need a break. <laughs> So financial, emotional, physical, psychological abuse from the third one. Mm. She was an artist. She knew her stuff. In the midst of this relationship, I'm going to hazard a guess that you were kind of just moving from pain to a little bit less pain. Yes, it was a, a sine wave, a constant rotation between pain, and I understood that, to a brief gap of normality, which felt so strange, to another form of pain, psychological, emotional, financial, and then up to normality again, and then up to physical pain. And it was a constant sine wave, a lot, looking a lot like the ABC logo, just up and down, up and down. And it was constant for 10 years, 11 years. And it's still going on, but at a much lower intensity. And the physical pain is gone. Um, I'm slowly winning. I now have the right to see my son one weekend a month. Um, but I still have to pay all the costs of transporting him from Newcastle. She refuses to pay any of his transport costs. So that's all on me. Um, although now I no longer have to fly in business class. Thank God I won that battle with the courts. I can now fly him economy from Newcastle to here. Um, there's no desire on her part to uh, facilitate even a slight amount of that money. Mm. And the demands that I have to buy her expensive lunches in very expensive restaurants in order to see my son has been squashed. Um, but there's still quite a lot of fighting to go. Mm. In terms of that cycle that you were in, the sine wave. Mm -hmm. So there were no good moments in between. There was only so-called normal. There were little periods of normality. 
Um, but on the whole, it was either um, an ascent into horror or a descent down to normality and then an ascent into a different type of horror and then up and down, mm. up and down. If there were no good moments as such, then, you know, what was it that was keeping you there? What was, I guess, the word dependency kind of comes to mind? There was a number of things. Um, one, there was the child. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have a, a very responsible sort of nature. And even to this day, I still feel very responsible for my son and, 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 and work very hard to try and ensure that he has a good future, which, of course, he won't have. Um, and so there was that. Uh, there was the fact that um, I'd invested an awful lot of money in the house and there was a lot of debts to pay. So there was that. And then there was that moral aspect. I had given my word in a marriage ceremony and um, nobody in my family had ever been divorced, ever. Well, I'm the first one. And so I was determined to make the marriage work. So I was so focused on making everything work that I was willing to sacrifice myself, and I did. And the end result was when I finally broke free, when I'd recovered from my second and final suicide attempt, I fled in terror, and I lived on the streets for a year. And that was a very different kind of hell. And I'd still be there now if, uh, if funnily enough, I hadn't been rescued by a Lutheran priest who... uh, found me sleeping under a bush on a golf course and took me into his house and showered me and laundered my clothes and fed me and gave me a place to sleep and let me use his PC so I could apply for work. And I've been free ever since. Mm. Otherwise, I'd probably be dead or still living on the streets. When you were in the relationship, though, I mean, did you realise how bad it was? Towards the end, yes. Because that's when the cycle had been broken, the, the abuse cycle, and, and the control had been lost. The dependency was weakening, and I could see that it was abusive. Mm. Up until that time, I was constantly trying to work out what the hell was going on and trying to find ways to make her happy. To me, her unhappiness was always my fault. When, towards the end, I realised that it didn't matter what I did, she was never going to be happy and that I was always going to be made to feel blame. That's when the cycle was broken and I fled. During this 10-plus year relationship, did your friends and family have any idea of what was oh, going on? Oh, they knew. Oh, they knew. They knew. They kept telling me when I kept saying, no, 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 that's not what's happening. But one by one, they were all eliminated. They were all taken out of the picture. I was isolated and isolated and isolated. And then in the end, I had nobody but her. And it took me years to be able to talk to my parents again. So how is it that you were isolated from them? Well, let's take and count my, my parents. They live in South Australia. Well, they used to. My mother died in January. But they were living in South Australia at the time, and we were living in Queensland. And I would have a weekly phone call, and I'd chat to them for an hour or so, or Skype them, because I was always very close to my parents. But there was a time, and I can't remember exactly when it started, but 
there was a time when I would talk to my parents and I'd hang up and I'd feel happy about it. And then the abuse would begin. I would be harassed, tormented for talking to my parents. They were constantly being put down and it went on and on and on. And the immediate response was I started talking for less time with my parents, still once a week, but instead of an hour, an hour and a half, it, it dropped to 40 minutes and then it dropped to 30 minutes, and then it dropped to 20 minutes and then it dropped to 10 minutes. And then it went from once a week to once every two weeks and then once every three weeks. Because if I, the longer I talked to them or the more often I talked to them, the more intense the abuse became. And you do get to the point where you are so desperate for peace, you'll do anything. And I cut them loose. I couldn't live with the sleep deprivation because that was another one of her favorites. Because I go to bed early. We discussed that when you first came in. And I go to sleep very quickly. And so what she'd do is she'd wait until I'd just fallen asleep. Then she'd wake me up and question me. Then she'd leave me and I'd fall asleep. Then she'd wake me up and question me. She'd do this all night. And she'd do this for day after day after day. And I could go up to a week without proper sleep. Sometimes, once I went for a month without proper sleep. And that exhausts you in ways you cannot even begin to imagine. And you you do what I used to call dry hallucinations. You're walking around, you're conscious, you're awake and you're seeing things in front of you and that's because of a lack of sleep. The brain just hasn't had the time to process what happened in the day and it goes on and on and on. The hours drift into each other and they become longer and longer and longer and then you lose the sense of what is a day, what is a night, it all looks the same and it goes on and on and on and you never know when it's gonna stop and then it stops. And then two days later, it starts again. You'll do anything to stop that. You will make any sacrifice to make that stop. And I sacrificed my family. My sister still won't talk to me. That is why. So what was it that she was saying about your parents and um, what was it that led to your sister not talking to you anymore? She was saying that my parents were uneducated, which is not the case, that they were uncouth, that they weren't civilised, that um, they were too English. They're English. <laughs> it's, it's binary. You're either English or you're not. But, but, oh well, um, they were too old, they were retired. Um, she was angry because when she told, told them that they should buy us a house, they refused. And so they were greedy because they wouldn't buy us a house. When I tried to argue with her that, you know, they're retired, they paid off their own house, it's our responsibility to buy our house, um, more hate came my way. There were just all these things. I never believed them, but I just needed the peace. I needed to sleep. Boy, I needed to sleep. Not even the army drew, drove me to that point. Mm. So what happened with your sister? Well, this I think was the part of the fallout 
of the miscarriage or the apparent miscarriage. Apparently I was the only one who thought it was a miscarriage. Everybody else knew it was a phantom pregnancy. I only found out a couple of years ago. She told me she was pregnant and it was going to be our second child. I was really excited. And then a few months later, she, I took her to the hospital and, and she told me she had a miscarriage. Bad news, very devastating. <clears throat> and uh, <coughs> anyway, she had some sort of surgery and, uh, and life sort of picked up. Then um, she made this 25 point list of all the things that uh, my parents had done to cause her to have a miscarriage. And I was outraged. I thought that was really disgusting. And then a really intensive period of hate happened. And it only stopped when I organized a meeting with my parents and read the list to them and accused them of causing her miscarriage. My sister was so outraged that she's refused to talk to me since. And my parents were hor horrified. And they were living in Queensland at the time. They'd moved to Queensland to be closer to us. And within a month they'd left. They'd sold up and gone back to South Australia. And, and it was only a couple of years later I found out that she had a phantom pregnancy, not a miscarriage, that I'd been lied to in order to assault my parents and my sister in such a way. Do you remember some of the items that were on that list? No. Um, what was on the list is completely blanked. It was too horrible. I would like to try and remember what was on that list, but I can't. I can't even see the piece of paper, but I can still see the look on my family's face when I told them. How does that make you feel now that, you know, you caused them that kind of hurt? Makes me feel very, very angry. Very angry that I was driven to do that. You see, you reach a point where, and I've said this a few times, you're so desperate for peace that you will agree to anything in order to attain it. You're driven to a point where you're no longer human. And I was at that point, and she kept me at that point for another three years after that. It was horrible. Horrible. I'm assuming that she kept ratcheting up the abuse oh yeah it was it wasn't a slow burn but it, what, what you could say it was a very gradual incline that um, you'd think every day was the same and then you'd look back and you'd realize how much easier it was only a couple of weeks ago and it just got harder and harder and harder and harder and you would, I don't know if you've seen those macadamia crushes where you put the macadamia in the middle and you turn the screw and turn the screw and then eventually the shell breaks and you get the flesh inside. That's what it was like. It was a continuously slow twisting of the screw. And it was uh, pretty horrible. Yeah, it was awful. So the sleep deprivation was 
Oh. Very, very bad. <sighs> and it got worse than that. Yeah, it, uh, it got worse than that. Um, there would be times when, you know, if you even so much as looked happy or contented or, you know, you, you had a quiet moment, then all hell would come down on me. And you never knew exactly when it was going to happen. But it happened so regularly that you knew it was going to happen two or three or sometimes four times a day. You just didn't know exactly when. And it could all come in one at once in an hour or it could be spread out over the whole day. So you were always on edge. You were hypervigilant. And you were relieved when the abuse started. That, that was weird. When there was no abuse, you were really concerned because there was no abuse. When the abuse was occurring, it was a relief, a relief because there was a degree of normality. Or there certainty. Was, yeah, there was some communication happening, mm. very one-sided and very negative, but it was happening. And then it would stop and you'd feel another sense of relief that the horrible episode had ended. And then that would evaporate fairly quickly. And a slow burn would, is, would commence as you realize that you were now on the spiral up to another bout. And sometime between when that last bout had ended and when that bout was beginning, you had no idea how long that period was. And so your tension increased step by step by step. And by the time the abuse came around, you were so tense. You were so on edge. And then it happened. You went, yes. Horrible. So you've mentioned a few things that you, you know, that you did, such as, you know, you were sleeping on the floor of mm -hmm. the other bedroom. You stopped um, talking to your family. Yep. You had to keep increasing your salary. Yep. On like a day-to-day -day level, what were sort of some changes in your behaviour or changes that you made to yourself that you had to do in order to pacify her? Well, I had to not be in the house when she woke up in the morning. So I had to be up, showered, dressed, breakfasted, clean the dishes, put them away and leave before she got out of bed. Um, and I had to be home at exactly the same hour every day. And if I, if I achieved those deadlines, she was happy, at least for a little while. If I missed those deadlines in any way, even by a few minutes, the abuse came very quickly, very viciously. It was, I never felt like I was achieving any sort of happiness or contentedness. And I could never understand why, but I understand why now. But you can't see it when you're in it. I mean, you were really driven to create these moments of relative peace. Hmm. Did that just like blind you to the reality or the truth that these demands were just completely unreasonable? No, no, I knew they were unreasonable. I knew they were idiotic, but I didn't dare not try. And the from about 75% of the way through the marriage, I understood 
or was beginning to understand what was going on. But I couldn't see how to get out. How did you begin to come to that realization? It was something my mother said. And she said, Simon, you've got two, two pathways now. You can kill yourself or you can get a divorce and there's no other way out. And when your mother says that to you, you tend to sit up and take notice. And that was in the last phone call I had with her. And when the phone got hung up, my ex came in and she said, who are you talking to? And I said, my mother. And the hatred filled, filled the room. She said, you're not supposed to talk to your mother. She's a bitch. And it just got more and more intense and more and more intense and more and more intense. And that was the point when I thought, okay, there's something seriously wrong here. And I started trying to find a way out of it. And at first I took the very dark route and tried to kill myself. Tried to pick a fight with a policeman. Ended up being arrested and thrown in the loony bin for a week. <laughs> what did you do in trying to pick a fight with a policeman? Well, I walked up behind him as he was walking along the street and I pushed his hat off and then shoved him in the back and started really trying to intimidate him, saying, shoot me, shoot me, shoot me, shoot me, shoot me. I was just so desperate to end my life. And I'd seen people get killed in the Middle East by bullets and it looked like a very painless, quick an easy death. But uh, my police officer was a hell of a lot smarter than I was. And he didn't press charges. But I did have to sit in a psych ward for a week and cool my heels and think, well, that was stupid. <laughs> and it was stupid. I'm actually very grateful to him. So when I had a week's rest. I mean, when you're in the psych ward, did they try to understand what was wrong? No, they pretty much ignored me for a week. And at the end of the week, they let me go and I caught a cab home. I only saw the psych twice. Once when I was admitted and once when I left. I'm not entirely certain what they're for, to be honest. I just sort of mooched around, talked to the other crazies. Or as I called them, crazies. Realized that there were people out there who had way more problems than I will ever have. Thank God. Um, and then I went home. I went home with these little pills, which are a form of antidepressant. And when you took them, you felt calm, peaceful, normal. But they had one drawback. They made you sleepy. She didn't like that. Because when I took the pills, I couldn't do the hard labor in the backyard or the jobs around the house, so she threw them out. And that led to my second suicide attempt because there was just no relief from the massive depression and suicidal thoughts that I had. But those pills were, were supposed to fight. When you came home after that week in the psych ward, mm. I, mean, I don't know if you had any contact with her during yeah. that week, but how did no. you explain your absence? Well, the police had told her I'd been taken to the psych ward. Mm -hmm. um, and it was like when I was in hospital with whooping cough. 
Um, I was just accused of being lazy and given a whole list of jobs that I had to do and the jobs that I was supposed to do that week. And so there was no compassion, no thought. And that's why the pills were taken away and, and disposed of because they made me sleepy and I couldn't perform. And then a few weeks later, um, I went to a local highway and I jumped in front of an 18-wheeler truck in the middle of the night. And that guy had some really good reaction times. He just swooped around me. I didn't think trucks could move and maneuver like that. They just went woof. And then he stopped. And then he took me to the hospital and threw me in a psych ward for a week. <laughs> but I think I earned that one. When I got out and I was taken back home by cab again because nobody ever comes to pick me up in the hospital or visit me in the hospital, I, um, I just walked out. I just walked out, walked out. I worked my way to Adelaide, hitchhiked, walked a couple of hundred kilometers. Couldn't face my family, lived on the streets for a year. And that's a totally different adventure. One I do not want to repeat. How did you survive? Oh, I used to rummage through garbage bins at the back of um, restaurants and eat the leftovers that have been discarded and sleep under bushes. And the thing is, a lot of the time you'd wake up being peed on by a drunk. Um, and that was if you're lucky. Sometimes you'd be kicked awake and then held up against a wall and beaten and then dropped. And I would go to places to seek help. I went to a, um, um, a shelter for domestic violence abuse. And I went there and tried to explain to them what happened. They said, no, a domestic violence is only men beating women. You're a liar. Got kicked out went to Centrelink and said, look, I really, really need some help. They said, nah, you're a veteran, go to Veterans Affairs. I went to Veterans Affairs and they had nothing for me. I then went to um, a social services group, one of those private things run by volunteers. And they chased me out, threatened to report me to the police. There's nothing for me, nothing at all. Nobody believes that men are victims of domestic violence. And that's one of the reasons I wrote my book. People have got to learn that it's not just men and not just white men. That it's anybody, any race, any sex can be an abuser. Just like anybody can be a victim. And it doesn't matter if you're gay or straight or if you'd like to paint your skin purple. It doesn't matter. And once you're in an abusive relationship, it doesn't matter if you're four or five or a dozen times stronger than the person who's abusing you. If you're in a relationship, there is there's an element in the relationship that will prevent you from responding violently to the abuse. And that's the only way that the abusive person can get away with it, because they know that you will not strike back. And I've got a lot of restraint built into me. And 
I never responded back. Except to flee for my life. What has been in these three abusive relationships told you about yourself or how has that sort of made you feel about yourself? Now that I'm free and I realise that um, there is no love for me, there is no woman for me, I can accept who I am a lot more. Um, I can face, I can wake up in the morning and I can face the day and I can go and I can do it and I can come back and there's two little faces. Well, I've gone to bed. There's two little faces, two little furry faces. And when I come home, they're circling around, they're getting excited, they're mewing and I give them their food. And then I let them out in the backyard and they try to catch birds, but birds are too smart for cats. And then they come in and they clean themselves and then one of them will sit on my lap and purr and... There is happiness in my life now. It's in the shape of two cats. And I don't know if you've ever been to Thailand. Um, I haven't. But you go to some of the bars and you see these old 65-year-old, very sad, fat men drinking their beers at 8 o'clock in the morning. You know they've got no one. And I know that's my fate. But I'm free. And I will happily accept dying alone and unregarded because I'm never going to let anybody abuse me again. First sign of any form of abuse, it's just going to end there, straight away. It's not going to happen a fourth time. Three times is far too much. Why I only attract abusive women, I have no idea. but I am incredibly skittish. So, I don't know. It's hard to tell. You can't psychoanalyze yourself. <laughs> so. I try anyway. Oh, so do I. I've asked myself a hell of a lot of questions while I've been writing my book, which is called Tears, by the way, which I thought's a good name. And I have some answers, but I don't have any any of the really big answers. I just have the little ones, mainly observations, like a deeper understanding of how the abuse cycle begins and goes through its phases. I understand how a victim can excuse and argue away what's happening to them while it's happening to them. I understand the psychology of splitting your personality into a compart to compartmentalize what's happening to you somewhere else so that you can survive. But what? that's all tiny things. It's the big questions I don't understand. Why did you write your book? <laughs> My book wrote me. I started researching a book about the Carthaginian wars between Rome and Carthage. <laughs> And I did lots and lots and lots of research. And then I sat down to start writing. And it didn't matter how hard I tried, a different book was coming out. Um, all of a sudden, the stories started coming out. 
and it just came out as a book. And before I knew it, I'd written the 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 final draft of the book, and I'd submitted it to my beta readers, and they'd started going through it. And next week, it's going to go to the editor. And I can't explain why the book came out. It just did. And it's a hell of a lot more dramatic than I thought it was. Um, and I've read parts of it to other victims. And they've all asked me to stop because I keep bringing back all the nightmares. So it's important. People need to know the real horror. And the real horror is not some cartoonish advert about a boy shutting a door in a girl's face on the television. That's just rudeness. That's not abuse. The abuse is all in your head. The violence... The assaults, the verbaling are just tools to get inside your head. All the abuse happens inside the head. And it's all emotional. And I describe that, I think, very, very well. And yeah, it does give me nightmares when I read, read it. But people have got to learn, right? And there's got to be services for men out there. People have got to learn that doesn't matter what you are, you can be a victim. And that we've got to stop this ridiculous bigotry that says that only women are abused. And that only abuse is, and that abuse is only physical violence hitting somebody. It's not. It's not. There are far more subtle ways to extract the same amount of pain without having to go through the physical exertion of striking somebody. And so hopefully that book will go some way to explain that. So you interviewed over 200... Abusive people, yeah. Abusive people, perpetrators for your book. Mm -hmm. Across what period of time were you doing that? That was a fairly intensive period of time of eight months. Okay. And I interviewed um, people from the United States, Canada and Great Britain by telephone. I interviewed a number of people in New South Wales, the ACT, Victoria and South Australia. I interviewed two people in jail, but I'm not going to say which jail they were in because with all of them, I promised uh, not to identify them or to give any indications to where they live or whatever. So um, as much as uh, I despise them all intensely, I am grateful for what they told me, and um, I'm going to respect their privacy. Uh, that's the least I can do. I, I may want to write a sequel, and I may want to talk to them again. God, I hope not. <laughs> they are really frightening people. Look, look, for example, there's this one guy. Um, he doesn't mind me talking about what he did. He just doesn't want me to name him or tell you what prison he's in. He's in a very, 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 very big prison. and. He'd been abusing his wife for a couple of years by stripping her naked, tying her to a chair, lighting a cigarette and then burning her nipples with the lit end. And he'd done that so often that the scar tissue on her nipples was so thick that she could no longer feel it. And he said that his enjoyment 
that was the really frightening thing. His enjoyment was decreasing. And then she, she, he was feeling cheated because she wasn't screaming in pain. There was no look of fear. So he heated up an iron and beat her to death with the hot side of the iron. That's truly horrible. And the really frightening thing is that he can't understand why he's in jail. He said that she deserved it. And he really couldn't understand why he was in jail. He thinks of total miscarriage of justice. And I said, well, do, do you agree that killing somebody's wrong? He said, oh yeah, killing people's wrong. I said, but you killed your wife. He said, oh, but she deserved it. And as I was leaving the jail, I was talking to the guard who was escorting me out and I said, he's a spooky guy. And the guard said, yeah, none of the prisoners will go near him. I said, but he's such a tiny person. He said, let me introduce you to somebody. So he made a phone call somewhere in the prison. This big, strong, black, heavily tattooed monster of a man with, uh, you know, the, the the total, the typical serial killer look. He's a murderer, killer's accountant or something. Very nice guy, actually. I, I quite liked it. <laughs> Weird. And we sat down and we had a long chat. And um, I, at, towards the end of the conversation, I said, look, you killed your accountant. He said, yeah. I said, um, I'm going to ask you a strange question. Um, do you think you deserve to be here in jail? He said, oh, hell yeah. I shouldn't have done that. I deserve everything I get in here. And I said, well, do you know any of the other murderers here? He says, yeah, we all say the same thing except for one guy. And I said, don't tell me it's, and I told them the name again. Yeah, we don't go near him. I said, why? He said, have you talked to that guy? <laughs> and this guy was three times bigger than him. I mean, he wasn't fat. He, he made Arnold Schwarzenegger look like an Ethiopian refugee. Um, still one of the nicest people I've ever met frighteningly enough. But they were all terrified of this weedy little guy because it didn't take long for them to realize what he'd done, that he did it because he wasn't happy with her because she was no longer suffering. That's scary enough. And that he legitimately cannot explain why what he did was wrong. And for the average run-of-the-mill murderer, even the ones who killed more than one person, they all know that what they did was wrong. And they are terrified of people like that. And that's the caliber of people I spent eight months running around the world talking to. And oh, not again. <laughs> I had a really good look on the dark side. And I'm glad I'm on the light side. What did it feel like then across those eight months talking to these abusers? It was a mixture of relief and the slow terror you feel in a car accident. I was always happy when I finished the conversation and shut down my recording device and ran away. And then there was that slow burn while you're waiting to organize the meeting and talk to them. Then the, the absolute terror, because I know I'm sitting in a room with an animal and it didn't matter whether they're male or female, I interviewed both sexes equally with an animal who could sense what I was, someone who's susceptible to abuse, and that I was totally in their hands and totally dependent on their mercy and their willingness to tell me the truth and not abuse me before I got out of there.
and every single one of them upheld their side of the bargain um, did not abuse me while I was there but there was always that feeling and it was not comfortable not in the slightest so that experience was terrifying but did it oh, also yeah. do something for you personally that was beneficial yes it gave me a deeper understanding as, as to what we are as human beings and i'm not talking just the the bad part um it made me understand how really complex we are because they weren't all crazy animals the funny thing is, is that, like the murderer, um, a lot of them were really nice people. And when you juxtapose the thoroughly evil behaviour with a really nice guy, it's very hard to look at it in any other way than to accept that we are incredibly complicated and that... You can never truly know anybody. And that's actually a really nice thing. Um, it's made me more understanding and more tolerant of people, I think. So you mentioned that you're quite skittish now mm. around females and you have a hard time trusting people. And you also mentioned about, you know, the men in Thailand. So you can't see yourself getting into another relationship? I can't understand why somebody would want to be in a relationship with me which wasn't abusive. Um, it sounds weird. It's, what, 2019, my last relationship ended in October 2013. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe the people I formed the relationship with were normal before I formed the relationship with them. There's something in me that brings the evil out. Because it happened three times. Maybe I'm attracted to abusive people. Or maybe abusive people are attracted to me and I just can't see any other people. I am so confused. I just don't know. I really just don't know. For all the processing that you've done about all these things that happened to you, have you recovered your self-worth at all? Yes. Yes. And what's more, I think I'm more robust than I was before. Because now I'm able to laugh at myself way more than I used to be able to. Um, I see the funny side in everything I do. I don't take myself very seriously. I'm constantly laughing at the little mistakes I make. Um, and I think I approach my life and the life around me with a great deal more humour than I ever did before. Because I've come out of a really black place that lasted well over a decade. And I'm now in this happy world. Yeah, I think I'm happier, more jovial, more easy to laugh, 
way more open than I used to be. It may sound all very dark and foreboding, but most of the time I'm laughing and giggling and telling funny jokes and it's just we're talking about a dark subject, so there's not much room for humour. <laughs> so you're happier, but are you happy? No. I'm terribly alone. And I can't see a way out of that. But I've got my cats. You've been listening to Love, Canberra. The theme music is by Proletar. Details for the interstitial music are in the show notes. You can always get in touch at lovecanberrapodcast at gmail.com. My release schedule is a bit irregular at the moment, but rest assured there are more great episodes coming up. I'm Ivana Ho. Thanks for listening.